According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 9 this morning. Proverbs 9, looking at verses uh, 1 through 6, dealing with uh, these issues, getting ready to look at the scoffer once we get to verse 7 and following. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. See, who are we here to reprove? And uh, admittedly, this is an Old Testament passage, but we bring it into the New Testament and bring it into the church. There is reproof in the church. As we understand, in the role of the pastor-teacher is to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. But who am I here to reprove? And what is the, uh, the role in these things? So we'll deal with that. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So... We're not quite there yet. I'm looking forward to it. There's some good good meat there. We're still dealing with uh, Lady Wisdom and her seven-pillared house. Uh, she has built this house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has set her table. She has sent out her maiden. She calls. Wow. She's done a lot. <laughs> what did she leave unfinished? What did she leave expecting me to take care of? or you to take care of, or what was left undone that, uh, that we have to make up a deficiency or do something ourselves in order to earn something or deserve something. Uh, nothing, all right? Nothing whatsoever. All has been done. Everything has been done. We simply need to accept. We need to receive. We need to accept at, on her terms what it is that she is offering us based upon what it is she has done. And so we see this as a, it's a beautiful picture. It's an illustrative of uh, salvation in the sense that Jesus has done it all. All to him I owe, right? He is making us an offer. We must accept the offer on the terms by which he is extending it, which is faith alone, right? In Christ alone. So there's so much here that we can understand as a pattern for eternal life, for salvation. When we try to teach a doctrine of Old Testament salvation, I think this is a great passage to turn to. This, uh, this Isaiah, several other passages we can turn to to demonstrate that nobody got saved in a different way than we get saved today. See, and that's, that's kind of a, it's a red herring, it's a criticism. Uh, you may encounter that. In fact, a lot of the times anti-dispensationalists will use that as a, as a billy club to try to beat up dispensationalists to say, well, you teach, you teach different forms of salvation and different... No, we don't. It's always by grace through faith. We, we simply are looking back to a finished work of, on the cross. In the Old Testament, they looked forward, but it was still grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Same as how you and I got saved. And we see the, uh, the process of it here. All right. Well, let's get started by a word of prayer. Let's quiet our hearts and humble ourselves and ask the Father to bless our time of study today. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness as we study to show ourselves approved. Father, we are uh, diligent, we are active, we are um, in obedience to the scriptures, we are actively studying, but at the same time, Father, we are passively being led, being taught. It is the faithfulness of your Holy Spirit, Father, that leads us in all things, even the deep things of God. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again this morning to open the eyes of our understanding, to bless us with the truth of your word. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Come, eat of my food, drink of the wine I have mixed. See, the food's just sitting there. And if we don't come, it's still going to just be sitting there. If we don't eat, it's still just going to be sitting there. All right? Preparation is preparation, but preparation requires a response. An invitation requires an acceptance. If, if the, the 
hungry person doesn't come, if the thirsty person doesn't come, if they don't eat, if they don't drink, then the food and the drink just sits there. It's, it's no less provided for. It's just as provided for as the food that is eaten and drunk. It's just the food that's not eaten and drunk. It is just as provided for, we understand. So there's a difference between what's provided and what is accepted versus what is rejected. And this becomes, <clears throat> I think, an important study as well. And so in our outline, we're in the midst now of main point two. We, uh, under point one, uh, viewed the chapter as a recap and a conclusion to uh, the first nine chapters of the book. Chapter 9 recaps and concludes the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. Secondly, we uh, are studying wisdom's seven-pillared house as an illustration. Jesus Christ delights to provide for men. We saw in chapter 8, he has a delight in the sons of men, and he has a delight in providing a residence preparing a dwelling place for them, an eternal dwelling place ultimately, but even in time, the dwelling place for the sons of men is the Word of God. It's the Word of God, all right? That's our dwelling place. And whether you live in a condo or a house or an RV or a tent or under a bridge or wherever you live on this earth, we are to live in the Word of God. We are to dwell in the Word of God. And if we do dwell in the Word of God, then we are truly His disciples, regardless of the square footage of our residence, you understand. And so uh, Jesus delights in providing a dwelling place. The living Word uh, designs our dwelling place in Him, in Him as the living Word and in Him as the written Word. So we uh, have been understanding uh, what are these seven pillars is it, uh, do we put labels on those seven pillars from the description in chapter 8? Do we put descri- uh, labels on those seven pillars from Isaiah 11? Do we put labels on those seven pillars from James 3? Uh, I don't believe it's possible to put labels on these seven pillars. Um, probably the best of all those least desirable options is the Proverbs 8 option. Uh, to say, okay, here's a prudence column, here's a knowledge and discretion column, here's a fear of the Lord column, all the pillars. If you insist, absolutely insist on putting labels on them, um, then hermeneutically Proverbs 8 is closer in context to Isaiah 11 and certainly better than uh, James 3. But I think it's better to not try to assign a label on any of the pillars since the text itself doesn't do that. Uh, Proverbs 9 does not put labels on those seven pillars. And uh, best just to simply view it as a complete number, as a perfect number, as a law, as a number to illustrate the spacious palatial residence. That the uh, understanding that how much more grand is it than even Solomon's temple, uh, which had two pillars out front, which we looked at, and we'll see again here this morning. It is not a two-pillared portico in front of this house like Solomon's temple has. It is a seven-pillared portico in front of the house. Much grander, much more glorious is to be in the Word of God. And so we ran out of time as we were looking at pillars. This is point E in your outline. Additional thoughts on pillars. Heaven has pillars as does the earth. The way that the Old Testament and New Testament alike both use pillars, oftentimes it's metaphoric. The metaphoric use we want to understand for what it is. If it's if it's not to be taken literally, then how do we handle the literal metaphor? How do we handle the metaphor that still uses a literal word like pillar? What does it speak to? As it speaks to a basis or a foundation or a solid uh, 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 basis for something. So heaven has pillars as does the earth. The Old Testament features pillars of salt in Genesis, pillars of cloud and fire in Exodus. And again, they're, they're still literal pillars, even if they're representative of other things. All right, The pillar of salt is a literal pillar of salt, even though it does represent the faithlessness of looking back and not trusting the Lord and not being obedient and aspects there. The pillar of cloud and fire are, are still representative of literal things, even though they're you know, representative of Jesus Christ and His guidance through uh, the wilderness of life and, and aspects there. It is a pattern for us to, to learn from. Still, it's a literal pillar that guided them, literal Jews, through a literal wilderness in, uh, in the Exodus. Pillars were memorial, idolatrous, and or boastful. 
and a whole slew of scriptures here. Pillars were memorial, idolatrous, and or boastful. I won't go back and repeat those because there's too many and we uh, dealt with that a week ago. Uh, but a pillar is a nice monument, a nice thing to look at. And you look at, and we still have them to this day. Different cultures put up pillars for different things and uh, different monuments to remind you of battles or people that died or other things that need to be uh, remembered. Here's where we ran out of time, what I want to pick up on this morning. Pillars were features of Solomon's temple, features of the early church, and features of the completed church. And uh, in particular, uh, I didn't turn to Galatians, I just referenced it, uh, but we can, uh, we can pick up here. 1 Kings chapter 7 with Solomon's temple. And I will quiz you before you leave. You won't be allowed to leave until you can name the two pillars that are in front of Solomon's temple. 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 2, verse 3, verse 6, and verse 21. And I think it is useful to consider how many different kinds of pillars there are. There are load-bearing pillars that support the structure internally, and then there are the uh, facing pillars uh, in the in the uh, at the entrance up front that demonstrates the uh, the grandeur of it as you approach. So First Kings seven in verse two he built the house of the forest of Lebanon. This is his personal palace. Solomon was building his own house thirteen years and he finished all his house. Uh, I'm not sure what the over-under is on Joe Patriarcho's place or not, but Solomon uh, spent 13 years building his house. All right, and you can tell him I said that. Um, Verse 2, he built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width was 50 cubits, its height was 30 cubits, on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And so these pillars are what we're talking about. This is our vocabulary for pillars uh, wisdom has hewn out her seven pillars, and we have the uh, the description of it here. It was paneled with cedar above the side chambers, which were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. So 45 pillars, wow, that seems huge, right? That seems, that seems amazing. Well, understand these are internal pillars. These are support posts. These are uh, pillars of... Um, of, a, of, of uh, a functional basis like you might have here. You know, you've got some support pillars here that are holding up joists and beams and other things that, that are load-bearing in the, for the first floor, uh, being there of stone, and the second floor being of wood and so forth. That's a different kind of pillar, you might understand. still uses the word pillar. All right. And so it's worth considering then, if wisdom has carved out her seven pillars. Is that what we're talking about? Are we talking about the, the, uh, the uh, portico pillars that are on the facing side or the front or the entrance? In other words, the display of grandeur as you enter a facility as opposed to something architectural and functional that, uh, that hold the place up. Okay, uh, and, and that's what we're looking at here. So uh, 45 pillars, 15 in each row. And there were artistic window frames in three rows. And the window was opposite window in three ranks. And all the doorways and doorposts had squared artistic frames. And uh, window was opposite window in three ranks. And he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits. Its width, 30 cubits. And a porch was in front of them. And pillars and a threshold in front of them. And so now we start to see that there's a different kind of pillar that that is featured at the entrance is featured at the porch or the portico and uh, and it serves to illustrate the um the entrance to a palace or a temple or a facility and uh and so forth and he made the hall of the throne where he was to judge and and it goes on anyway there's the the description of it there and um this this glorious glorious house okay and uh, who was it prepared for? Well, wife number one. Okay, I, I suspect the other nine ninety nine did not get uh, residences quite this opulent. 
And so uh, his house where he was to live, the other court inward from the hall was of the same workmanship. He also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom Solomon had married. And so she has to have a roof over her head. And ultimately, under Mosaic law, you were supposed to have equivalent dwellings and equivalent privileges for every wife you married. Uh, all these were of costly stones and uh, so forth. You get in the end of verse 21. Uh, Here's the two dominant pillars now that are in front of the um, portico and emphasizing their capitals. So um, once you get to verses 13 and following, now you've got the uh, other pillars. Verse 15 says, He fashioned the two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of twelve cubits measured the circumference of both. And so now these two are significant. They stand in front. And they're different than those other 45 pillars, right, that, that were running down the center of the, of the palace. And uh, the two capitals of molten bronze to set on the tops of the pillars, the heights of the one capital, the height of the one capital was five cubits, the height of the other capital was five cubits. And anyway, this all gets described here. Interestingly enough, Galatians 2.9 refers to Peter, James, and John as pillars of the church. And we taught this in the Galatians series. Let's look at it, Galatians 2.9. Because um, the church is different than Israel. And Israel had a temple. The church is a temple. Uh, Jerusalem was the center of worship for Israel. It was Mount Zion where uh, they were to direct their prayers and Jewish people were to come and the temple was to be built. But Jesus told the woman in the well that it was neither in Mount Zion nor in Mount Gerizim that a day is coming and now is when neither in this mountain nor in Mount uh, Zion will you come to worship for God is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. In John chapter 4, Jesus spoke to that Samaritan woman to highlight a coming stewardship, that is you and I now in the church, whereby the geography is not holy. All right, We don't have a holy temple, a holy city, a holy place. We operate in the holy of holies in the heavenly places. See? And so as opposed to Solomon's temple that had the two pillars out front, we have the image of of this, the language of pillars that is used in Galatians 2.9 um, and in the reputation that they had. So um, in these earlier verses 2 and following, he's talking about the legalists. In verse 4, it was the false brethren secretly brought in who sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. And this is what happens. Legalists aren't happy being legalists if other people aren't sharing in their legalist misery. They want to uh, enslave grace people and bring them into their uh, legalism bondage. We did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you compromise and legalism destroys your witness but from those who are of reputation now this is where we understand the metaphor of a pillar has has uh, bearing is because even though it's being used as a metaphor it still has a basis in the reality of what a what a pillar is a pillar is a memorial a pillar is a tribute a pillar is a boast a pillar is a is uh is a lot of things okay here it's being used to speak of the high reputation. And what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who are of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, see, this is the nature of it. They, they may be their reputation. Great, happy for their reputation. But Paul said his apostleship was not in any way inferior to their apostleship. Verse 9, recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And so here we see the, the comparable status of Barnabas and Paul as apostles, legitimate apostles, on a level with even the pillars, uh, James and Cephas and John. So they extended, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they 
to the un, or to the uh, circumcised. And so here we see pillars in the early church. And the pillars in the early church are the leading apostles, the leading uh, teachers, uh, spiritual leaders, we might say, and, uh, and aspects there. I, I don't think it's, it's necessarily wrong or idolatrous. Clearly, if you lift somebody up on a pedestal and you start to worship them, then, then I believe you've crossed a line and, and now you're, you're falling short in idolatry. But uh, was the early church wrong to identify Peter, James, and John as pillars? You know, I, 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 there's a lot of sermons that are very critical on this and preach against it. Uh, I think give honor to whom honor is due, and, and if, if they're pillars, they're pillars. And if they have a reputation, they have a reputation. Identify what that reputation is. And I would much rather make pillars out of those that have reputation as powerful teachers in the Word of God. The book of Acts does that repeatedly, uh, where uh, uh, you know Apollos was powerful in the Scriptures. Uh, they, they would encounter different apostles, different teachers, and they were powerful in the Scriptures. I don't mind that as a reputation, as a, and if, if there's a, you know, uh, if we can think of certain men as pillars, I think of uh, uh, Theme and Ralph Braun and, and, and Chet McCauley and Glenn Carnegie, and I think of uh, my childhood pastor, Ken Jensen. I mean, those guys were pillars as far as I'm concerned. They were, they were, they, uh, they were uh, I, I memorialized them. I, I think back to their example. And uh, I, I don't worship them. I don't idolize them. You see the difference? All right. And so, in any respect, that was historically the reality of the early church. It's also promised in the resurrection. Revelation 3.12. It will be a feature of the completed church. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12. So join me there. Because right now, even as we speak, right here, right now, in this room, I'm looking at you, I'm looking at believers that uh, I will be very pleased to observe as pillars in the completed temple in the resurrection. See? Not because you're special or I'm special or I'm going to make it happen. or It's because in the grace of God, we as overcomers in Christ are being suited for what is to come. What is the church? Say, the pillar and the support of the truth. And who are we? The overcomers in Christ. And what will we be? We will be pillars in this temple. And this is what's promised. Revelation 3.12. Um, we have the admonishment, I think, that comes in verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. We've got to be diligent in our obedience. He is coming quickly. Today may be the day. I want to be busy about my father's business. I want to achieve everything that he has for me. Let no one take your crown. I don't want to drop the ball if there's an assignment in front of me. Because if I do, then someone else will take my crown. We saw that in Esther this morning in, in the, the training hour, is that if you, who knows if you have been prepared for an hour such as this, and if you fail to do what you were called to do, God will bring about deliverance through another source. He's not, God won't be let down because you let him down, and somebody else will get it done what he wants done, but you're going to be, you're going to face the, the consequences. You will suffer loss for not doing what you were told to do. And here in this passage, it says someone's going to take your crown. You're going to watch them for all eternity wearing your crown, and you're thinking, man, that was my crown. I was supposed to bear that. I was supposed to do that. All right. Let no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now again, this is, there's a metaphoric reality to this. See, an understanding, and I think it's useful to consider Peter, James, and John and, and their uh, role as pillars. And what is our role as a pillar? What will be written on my pillar as I am made to be a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore? Well, how's that going to work? How am I going to ride on a white horse and follow him in the, in, uh, uh, the second advent in the battle of Armageddon if, uh, if I'm a pillar in the temple of my God? 
How, how, how are they both true? Are they both true? Of course, they're both true. God's not a liar. Both are true, but how does that work? I don't know. Somehow. Okay. Will I literally be, uh, you know, or will there be constructed in that temple a pillar that represents me, that's there, represents all of us, all right, that's there for all eternity? I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. We taught this in the Revelation class, and so hopefully you understand that there are more questions than answers in these rewards, all right? But these are our our rewards in the body of Christ. And if we don't understand how all of them are exactly going to uh, manifest themselves, well, then we've got something to look forward to, don't we? <laughs> we can be excited and, and uh, full of anticipation and, uh, and so forth. All right, so that keeps us waiting, right? We get to stay waiting and anticipating in, uh, in these things. Finally, the church itself is the pillar and support of the truth. The church itself, that is the body of Christ itself, the church universal is the pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 And uh, we have to uh, maintain this or we lose sight of what we're doing as a local church. Okay, we all, uh, that was another topic we were discussing in the pastoral training hour this morning. Is the nature of the church universal uh, in contrast to the local church? The local church being simply a one tiny little f- fractional uh, segment of the church universal. First Timothy three fourteen. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. And that is all of the uh, instructions as it pertains to elders and overseers with respect to men and women that precede that in, uh, and the priority of prayer. And so, you know, some people just say, well, it includes chapter 3. I, I think it includes chapter 2 and 3 as it pertains to, uh, to this. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. What is the church? It is the household of God. This is, and in that household, there's the management of the household. There is the stewardship, all right, in the household of God, which is presently the church of the living God. Now, the stewardship wasn't always in the church. The stewardship had previously been in Israel, and prior to that, stewardship had been in the Gentiles, and prior to that, stewardship had been in the, uh, uh, entrusted into the angels, all right. We understand there have been a sequence of stewards in the unfolding plan. But presently, at the writing of First Timothy, stewardship is in the church, the household of God, and there is a proper um, behavior, conduct, I should say, how one ought to conduct himself. There is a conduct and not to be um, you know, a legalist about it or whatever, but I think it's useful to be reverent in, uh, in, in the application there. I think Proverbs teaches us the fear of the Lord. Proverbs teaches us reverence. The New Testament uh, maintains reverence and the fear of the Lord. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Uh, we ought not to lose sight of reverence. For our God is a consuming fire. We have plenty of of New Testament admonitions that show us that the fear of the Lord from the Old Testament still applies today. All right, I think it applies more so in the church than it ever did for Israel. And that in the household of God, there is a ought to. All right? Conduct is defined as an ought to. And the ought to... Is, is not legalism. It's all grace. The ought to it, it, it takes a look at the grace that saved us and then says, now in view of that grace, how ought we now to live? See, we ought to live in grace because we have received grace. The ought to is the obligation we have in grace. That's the ought to. 
in some cases, you know, and it's more than just external behavior. It's a mindset. It's an attitude. And, uh, you know, a little kid, you say, is this a, uh, is this a playground or is this a church? Right? So why are you running around acting like you're at the playground? You know, are, are, these, are these chairs or are these monkey bars? What are you doing? You know, is this a church or is this a, a vacation resort? Are you at the beach? What are you doing? Okay? And so, not just with small children, with grown adults, I think it's functional, it's useful to say the church of the living God, and not, not, I'm not saying this is a holy building or whatever, I'm saying we have assembled together as a body of Christ, we are here to worship our Savior, we're here to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are here to be diligent to present ourselves approved before Him. Workmen needing not to be ashamed. Are we approaching in the right mindset? Are we approaching with the right ought to that is connected to the conduct? See, that's what the, this passage stresses. In case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. All right? So here we have it. And in the body of Christ, and it gets followed by the mystery of godliness and this great confession here. This is a confession that we all can voice. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, this is the Lord who you testify to. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That's the Savior I serve. That's the Savior you serve. We all name the name of Christ. This is our confession, the mystery of godliness. This is what we confess. Because he was taken up in glory, where are we? We're taken up in glory. We're seated at his right hand. He's seated at the Father's right hand. We're seated at at, at his right hand. Anyway, this is the church, the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so what should a local assembly be concerned with? The pillar and support of the truth. And so I ask myself, and I ask my fellow elders, and I ask my deacons, and I ask anyone that cares to be asked, what are we doing and why are we doing it? And is this an activity that is, that is compatible, consistent with the pillar and support of the truth? Or is this beyond and out of bounds? Is this, is this irrelevant to being the pillar and support of the truth? And if it's irrelevant to being the pillar and support of the truth, then... We might still choose to do it, but we don't have to do it. All right? You see what I'm saying? And the difference that happens there. So, uh, you know, as far as whatever, if, uh, you know, can we have a church picnic? Sure, we can, we can have a church picnic. We're going to have one this Saturday. We're going to join in Lost Pines Bible Church and their church picnic this coming Saturday. That's great. Is it consistent or inconsistent with being the pillar and support of the truth? Well, I guess we're going to have a devotion. We're going to do a Bible reading. We're going to fellowship in the truth. And so it's not inconsistent with the truth. But it's not as mandatory as all the teaching we do around here. All right? There's a reason why I teach 300 times a year. We might do one picnic a year. If we swap that around, do you think we'd have a problem? You know? If we have 300 picnics a year and one Bible class, I suspect that I would have to answer for that to Jesus Christ as head of the church. To say, you're the pillar and support of the church. You're not the, or the, of the truth. You're not the picnic basket of the truth. Okay? So we, we evaluate these metaphors on, on this basis so that we are... Um, humble before the Lord, obedient before Him, and in pursuing what it is that He has for us to do. All right, go back to Proverbs 9 then, and let's look at this invitation in verses 4 through 6. I love the invitation. Subpoint F now. Wisdom's invitation is a grace invitation. This is a grace invitation. And as a grace invitation, we can learn a lot from it. All right. Do you ever uh, do you know anything about grace invitations? Well, if you're saved, then you've responded to a grace invitation. And if you've ever 
given the gospel, then you've hopefully uttered a grace invitation. All right? Grace invitations are what it's about (laughs) in our evangelism. Grace invitations is what it's about in our salvation and how we got saved. So what do you think is happening here? It's a grace invitation. Who's it coming from? Jesus Christ. Who's wisdom? Jesus Christ. And let's take a look at this. And look what it starts with. Whosoever. Oh, look at that. Don't you just love it? I love the language of whosoever. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says. To him who lacks understanding. Who's that? Everybody. That's another whosoever, isn't it? We have two whosoevers right here in this verse. We have the first one as a literal whosoever, but then the second one, the him who lacks understanding is also a, a whosoever. Because it addresses everybody that doesn't have what she's offering. Okay? And so in the, in the sense of eternal life, whoever doesn't have what Jesus is offering is everybody. Whoever doesn't have eternal life, well, that's the whosoever. Here's a whosoever. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever. See? And it's beautiful language. It is some of the most beautiful language. Uh, it, 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 it ought to thrill us every time we think about it. It ought to encourage us in our, um, in our own evangelism ministry. Because whosoever is anybody. It's everybody. It's whosoever. See, whosoever means me. I think there's even a hymn that has that title, right? Whosoever meaneth me. I love that. So the whosoever is naive. Let him turn in here. All right? And and what what I find remarkable is that as a call, as an invitation, it's verbal. It has to be heard. It has to be understood. And it has to be responded to, all right? That there is a a response that is being urged, all right? It It is not a nothing that follows the invitation. It is a something that follows the invitation. It is a turn in here, or it is a come, or it is a eat, or it is a drink, or it is a a believe, all right? depending on the whosoever passage you're looking at. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so the whosoever of John 3.16 has a response, and that response is believe. The whosoever here of Proverbs 9 has a response, and that response is turn in here. Come, eat, drink, forsake, proceed. Alright? Now that's a whole lot of things. That's a whole lot of, 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 of responses. Stuff to do. Okay? But boil it all down. They're all saying the same thing. It's not a 12-step process. It's not a, it's not a combination of a whole lot of stuff you've got to do. Every single one of these metaphors, every single one of these responses is the same response as John 3.16. It's believe. Come is representative of believe. Eat is representative of believe. Drink is representative of believe. Turn in here is representative of believe. Forsake is representative of believe. And I think it's, it's useful if we can see them all in their variety, but then also see them all in their unity, to see them all as it's the same thing being said in, in multiple different ways. All painting a picture, all teaching the principle. And, and I think that we, we were off track if we draft a um, gospel tract that, uh, that, that, that divides the unity, that, that scatters all these things into a, into a step process, whereby you have to, uh, first of all, have a, 
forsake your folly step. First of all, you have to have a repentance step. Or first of all, you have to have a feel bad about yourself as a sinner step. Or, or whatever, all right? And then they try to line up three steps or four steps or six steps or whatever. They try to spell out a process by which they complicate the gospel. By which it's, it's, it's more complicated than believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Let's keep it simple, right? I've always, always, always subscribed to the KISS principle of keep it simple, stupid. That's, I, I learned that in the, in the army. I probably learned it before the army. Uh, is, is keep it simple, stupid. That's the, and, and you're the stupid one, is, 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 is the KISS principle. And, and when you complicate things, you just foul it all up. So, um, let him turn in here. All right? That is an expectation. That means that the person hearing the message has an expectation to respond. It's about initiation and response. That's what invitations are. That's what gifts are. They're given and they're received. There is an initiation and there is a response. There is a transmission and a reception, a giving and a receiving, an offering and an accepting, a promise and a trust. Okay? And without the trust, without the response, without the receiving, without the accepting, without the the uh, the the second part of this design, then it doesn't happen. It doesn't diminish the offer. It doesn't make the the, the gift illegitimate. It just doesn't finish the uh, the event. All right. So this is what we're looking at here, and this is uh, such a, a beautiful concept on this. All right. The invitation. The invitation. Sub point one. The invitation must be volitionally accepted as the naive turns in to enter wisdom's palace. The invitation must be volitionally accepted. Wisdom doesn't say, whoever is naive, I am sovereignly dragging you in here. All right? It is a verbal offer with an expectation. And the expectation is either an acceptance or a rejection. And it's left to the response, to the volitional response, to turn in here or turn somewhere else. To turn in here or walk on by. To, to come and eat or, no thanks, rather not. i got other things to do. Okay, I'll get religious when I'm older. I'm, I'm having fun right now. And, that, and word for word, that's what I was told in my own dorm room in the barracks before we shipped out to Saudi Arabia. And the man that said that to me died in Saudi Arabia. And he's in hell today. He had no time for the gospel. I'll get religious when I'm older. Say. And on uh, my birthday in 1991, is uh, is when uh, he was killed in a, in a head-on collision from a deuce and a half. If, if you're in a Humvee and you hit a deuce and a half head-on, um, yeah, you're not in good shape. All right. The verb is sewer. Sewer. Almost sounds like sewer. Get your mind out of the sewer. Sewer. C-U-W-R. Sewer. We use the C in transliteration so you don't confuse your psalmic with your scene. But um, it's, a, it's a soft C-S sounding sewer. C-U-W-R. Strong's number is uh, 5493. Uh, man, a ton of uses. Almost 300 uses. 297. And what's interesting... Um, I think with terms like sewer and terms like shuv and other Hebrew terms that speak of returning or either turning or returning uh, or changing, there's different verbs for uh, for these things. I like shuv a lot. I like sewer. Um, What's remarkable about those terms is that 
you, you need the context to tell you whether it's good or bad. All right? If you're turning from wickedness to the Lord, well, that's great. But the Hebrew would use the same verb for turning away from God and turning to idols. Right? Turning, uh, turning is in itself is neither good nor bad. It, what are you turning from and what are you turning to? That's like return, shuv in the Hebrew. That can be good. If you're returning to the Lord from your time of darkness, that can be great. We love that. But if you're returning to your vomit like a dog returns to his vomit or the sow returns to the mire, well then, yeah, in that context, returning is, is horrible. And, and, and so vocabulary is not... In other words, I don't recommend you go and read all 297 uses of, of sewer. You're going to be very bored with most of them. Uh, they're just, you know, turn. He turned and he saw something. He turned and whatever... Um, but when it's used in a sense such as this or in other applications, uh, I think then we can uh, benefit from the, from the imagery. And that's what we have here. So to turn, to enter, it is volitional. I think uh, we'll have three more uses in Proverbs that will be roughly comparable in this. Proverbs 13, 14, Proverbs 14, 27, and Proverbs 22, 6. And so just a sampling of three will be useful without having to you know, go look at hundreds and hundreds of, of uh, rather mundane turnings that you might otherwise uh, read in the Old Testament. Proverbs thirteen fourteen. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. Alright, so there's uh, a good use of, of sewer that applies there, that recognizes that there is a benefit in wisdom, that, that by the way, turning to the seven pillars and turning to wisdom's house uh, is not just a one-time only deal. It's not just, well, get saved, and now you're good to go for the rest of your life. No, you need to get saved, and then you need to keep turning to wisdom you need to be in the Word of God all day, every day. You need to constantly be learning, always growing, always, always turning to the Word of God and turning aside from the snares. That as a believer, there's tons of snares out there between your salvation and the day you go to heaven. There's going to be no, in, you know, numerous uh, snares and pits and downfalls and traps and all kinds of obstacles and, and, uh, uh, and, and failures. And, and we want to turn aside from all of those. Every step of the way. And it's going to be the teaching that's going to do that. So if we, if we respond in grace to this first turning, in other words, turning into wisdom's palace, then that becomes our pattern for every other turning we're going to do between the, the cross and the crown, between salvation and, and, uh, and glory. We're constantly turning to, the, to Jesus Christ like we're turning to Jesus Christ to be saved. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him. We're constantly keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, turning away from the snares of death. All right, Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may sewer, avoid, or turn away from the snares of death. Why does it use the translation avoid? In 1427, when it uses the translation turn aside in 1314, I don't know. Maybe uh, uh, maybe the publishers just wanted variety or whatever. To me, um, eh, I don't know, variety's nice, I suppose, for whatever, but I prefer consistency. How about that? And especially if it's a particular verb being used, why not have consistency in how you render it in English so you don't miss the point? The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from, turn to, turn into, turn towards the snares of death. And in, isn't it interesting? In, in chapter 13, it was a fountain. In chapter 14, it's a fountain. We got water language in both places. Back in, in our chapter this morning, in Proverbs 9, it's it's water it's food it's turn in here and i've prepared for you a meal i've prepared for you the um come eat of my food drink of the wine i have mixed and so there's something to partake of and in all these cases it's left to the volition of the person all right 
a fountain. Does a fountain go anywhere? Does a fountain stay where it is? Okay? So what do you need to do if you come across a fountain? Oh, you look at it? You appreciate it? Or do you drink from it? What do you do when you come across a fountain? Or do you turn away from it? And so I think it's interesting. The fountain of the wise is a teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside. There's still an expectation. There's a response. Is the is the positive volition going to turn aside from the snares of death? To turn aside, to avoid the snares of death. That the one may, language of potential. Are you going to avoid or are you not going to avoid? Are you going to turn aside or are you not going to turn aside? It's provided so that you may. But volitionally, do you? Volitionally, it's left in your uh, capacity. Proverbs 22.6 Train up a child in the way he should go. You know this verse? Probably quoted this a billion times and ever since the, you know, day one of uh, the birth of that child. And maybe even before, while the child was still in the womb. You're, you're quoting this verse. You're praying. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not sewer. He will not turn away from it. See, this is where turn away is a bad thing. If he turns away from the Word of God, oh my goodness. All right, so there's sewer. And it's left to the volition. Where do we turn? Where do we face? What do we do? Why are we doing it? The metaphoric use of drinking and eating equates to the volitional response of faith. Eating and drinking is a metaphor. We don't literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. We're not cannibals, all right? Particularly since his body was glorified and and ascended, and how do I eat his body literally? All right? It's presently seated into the right hand of the Father in resurrection glory. Eating and drinking equates to the volitional response of faith. Understand, pistuo is an active, transitive verb, and it is a response. It always has an object. You cannot pistuo nothing. You cannot place your trust in nothing. You must trust something. You must pistuo something. And so the metaphoric use of drinking and eating equates to the volitional response of faith. When the person accepts and receives the divine provision, turn in here. Come, eat of my food. Drink of the wine I have mixed. All right. You might even consider that as a shadow foreshadowing of communion, right? Did we not eat and drink on Sunday with the bread and the cup? So wisdom makes the offer. But wisdom doesn't shove the food down the person's throat or shove the wine down the person's throat. The person must respond. The metaphoric use equates to the volitional response of faith. This is the same concept that's found in Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. It's the same principle that's found in John chapter 6 and John chapter 7. And there were occasions as Jesus was preaching this that his audience was struggling. His audience was was not dealing well with the uh, eat my flesh message. So he doubled down on it. He said, oh, you got a problem with that? He says, all right, well, then you can eat my flesh and drink my blood. How do you like me now? All right. And he doubled down on his message, even as the critics were struggling. And even the disciples, hmm, it was giving them something to think about. Say, yeah. It's interesting. All right, let's look at Isaiah 55. We'll come back to this next week as well, Lord willing and rapture pending. Isaiah 55. Starts with a ho, which I like. Ho, that's an attention getter. 
You know, I could shout it and scare you, but I didn't want to do that this morning. Ho, everyone who thirsts. Hey, look at this. It's another whosoever in it. Everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. In other words, God recognizes there's a universal need and God has made universal provision. God has met that need. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Not only is there a universal need, but there is an inability on the part of those folks to uh, remedy their need. They have any money. They can't afford it. What are they going to do? Come, buy, and eat. Now, how do you buy something if you have no money? Somebody else is paying. That's right. You're buying, they're paying. And so you're still buying. But that's the thing. That's huge. Even if somebody else is paying, you still have to buy. In other words, there is an expectation of a response. There is an expectation. Somebody else paid, but you still must buy. You must make the purchase. You must drink the water. Come, buy, uh, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why? Because the price has already been paid. Someone else paid so that you can now buy without money and without cost. That is, uh, that is so huge. I, I, you could teach an entire biblical economics course right here in this one verse. You know, how many people confuse price with cost? And they confuse uh, money with wealth. And they confuse all kinds of things. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And wait a minute, I thought they didn't have any money. But they're spending money. All right. You who have no money, but they have money. But they have, the, they have a, the wrong kind of money. And the money they have doesn't buy this. The money they have is buying something different. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? Well, it looks like bread. Seems like bread, right? It's not the bread that satisfies. It's not the true bread that comes down out of heaven. The bread that provides for eternal life. The bread you buy, well, all right. That'll last for whatever. You consume some calories. It'll last you for a while. You'll burn the calories. You'll need more. What, um, and your wages for what does not satisfy. Huh. What do you know? I can earn money. Money is my wages. It doesn't grow on trees. I've got to work for it. How about that? But that's not the kind of money that buys the kind of bread that he's offering to whosoever will may come. All right. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Understand there's the true bread that comes down out of heaven. That's what we need. All right? That's what satisfies. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. So we have the metaphor of eating. This is representative of faith. I must respond. I must trust a promise. I must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so as to be saved. That then is the reality that the metaphor of eating speaks to. And I think it's, it's, it's a beautiful picture that not only eats, but has fun doing it. <laughs> all right eat what is good in other words enjoy it mm, man that's good okay 14 days <laughs> i've got two more weeks on this diet and then i can eat what is good um delight yourself in it doesn't say delight yourself in uh starvation dietary portions it doesn't say get the junior meal and hold the cheese. It's just pathetic, right? And worst of all is Christopher, of course, is just he's got the metabolism of something unearthly. It's bizarre. A kid can consume 3,000 calories and he's thin as a rail. And so, yeah, he's getting the double bacon, double cheeseburger, whatever, and wolfing it down with the fries and finishing his sister's fries and everything else. And I get the junior, 330-calorie junior burger, hold the cheese. 
No, it says, delight yourself in abundance. Delight yourself in abundance. Man, just chow down, right? Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Now we've changed from eating to listening, but it's the same message. It's, the same, it's, it's a different metaphor, but it's the same message. And come, come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. All right? So there's an invitation. Verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. He will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is not salvation by works. This is salvation by grace through faith. And the coming and the turning and the forsaking and the listening and the eating and the drinking and all of these are metaphoric representations of respond by faith to the promise. There is an expectation that volitionally you must respond. And if you don't respond, you're not saved. All right, we'll come back to this next week because I, I want to be cautious with this. There's, uh, there are struggles. I mean, there are passages that say, uh, you know, there is none who comes, there is none who seeks. And so those are true, but we also have seek while he may be found and those who come. We have to understand every passage and how they fit together, okay? And then we, we do real well with it. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace for our time together. Thank you for the whosoever. And I thank you, Father, for each one of us here today that have heard and that have listened, that have responded by faith, that have eternal life, and that we continue to hear and listen and respond, that day by day by day we walk by faith and not by sight. We're here to learn the Word of God, and again, it's a faith exercise. We're responding to the Word. Father, we're not just hearers, we're, we're hearers and doers. Father, we're workmen needing not to be ashamed, responding by faith. There's an expectation that we will do something with what we've heard here today. I thank you, Father, in his most precious and holy name. Amen.